Hi there, I want to welcome you to the Now Forming Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Spivey. I'm the lead pastor at People's Church, which is located in beautiful central Florida, and I'm also a lifelong learner and pursuer of God. It really is my hope and prayer that this podcast will help you to cultivate a deeper and more fulfilling life with God and those around you. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Now Forming podcast. Uh, I'm so blessed today to have a good friend of mine with me, uh, Father John Gullett. Uh, John is the rector at St. Albans Episcopal Church in Auburndale, Florida. And over the course of this uh, COVID situation, we've been spending a lot of time together. And uh, he's become a really good friend. John, thanks so much for, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Good. Well, I, uh, I'm working on a project in school, and I had asked John uh, to come on and talk with me a little bit about uh, a different view of communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Table, uh, whatever you term that, um, uh, because different, you know, different uh, churches have different views of, of what this is and what it means, and how present the Lord actually is in in that moment, and um, so I've just noticed about myself over the last uh, probably two to three years uh, a, a deepening commitment to and affinity for um, the Lord's table. And so, uh, John, would you just give us a little bit of background? I know you grew up in a pastor's home in the uh, Presbyterian Church, and uh, you just tell us a little bit about your background and what your understanding always was uh, about the Eucharist. Sure. Um, right. So I grew up in a pastor's home, in a Presbyterian pastor's home. Um, but even at that, you know, in the Presbyterian world, there's a range of views. Um, but I grew up only having uh, the Lord's Supper four times a year, had it quarterly. Um, and in the kind of church and tradition where those four times a year, uh, you generally sang the exact same four hymns each time, all four times a year. Um, and it was the same sort of sermon those four times a year. Um, and, you know, the focus really uh, was on remembering uh, the sacrifice of Christ for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Yes. So uh, it wasn't until I went to seminary, to a Presbyterian seminary, uh, but went to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis uh, and began to be exposed, even within the Presbyterian circles, uh, to other views to, uh, that, that, that weren't less than remembering, but were more than hmm. Uh, remembering the sacrifice of Christ uh, in the Lord's Supper. So it was at Covenant that I started to learn about the language of uh, the past significance of the Lord's Supper, which is remembering his sacrifice, but the present significance of the Lord's Supper, which is his active communion with us as we take, as we eat of the bread and the wine. Uh, and then the future significance of the Lord's Supper, which is that when we do it, it is anticipation of that day when we will eat and drink again mm. with him uh, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it was really in seminary that my thinking, my understanding began to 
to grow. Um, but that I think that's a helpful way that I've thought about it is that um, it's not less than what I understood growing up in the church I grew up in with my dad. Uh, it's just more. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And at some point, uh, you made the transition from the PCA church into the Episcopal church. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how sure. that happened? And Sure. Um, so again, it was at Covenant Seminary that I tell people that I got a high view of the sacraments and a high view of the church. And um, I already had a high view of the liturgy because my undergraduate studies were in music and with four semesters of music history, Western music history, so much of that is church music history, and that's where I learned about um, the historic Christian worship service in the Western church um, and began to then see how that shape of the liturgy um, was still with us even in the Presbyterian Church, in most other churches, Methodist churches I went to, even Baptist churches I went to. Um, can you, can you, there'll be some people listening to this yeah. who aren't familiar with the term liturgy. Sure. Um, and that's a great question. So the liturgy, I mean, the term literally means the work of God. Um, so everybody has a liturgy, whether you write it down on a piece of paper in a bulletin or whether it's up on a screen um, or whether you say, we're just going to follow the Spirit uh, in our worship service. Even when you say, we're just going to follow the Spirit in our worship service, you tend to do most of the same things each week, and there's probably some sort of progression to them. And whether you call it a liturgy or not, that's a liturgy. Yeah. So, so even you flaming-haired Pentecostals have a liturgy. Oh, you just yeah. don't know it. Right. Everybody has a liturgy. <laughs> you can't escape it. So to, to escape liturgy completely would be chaos. Hmm. And, and God's not got a chaos with order. Yes. Um, and so any way in which humans order, arrange, have any sort of movement or progression to do multiple things in worship is a liturgy. Hmm. Good. Yeah, that's good. So you're making... Did an event happen, or right. was your heart just moving? Good question. Or? So um, I planted a church in Johnson City, Tennessee, um, near the campus of East Tennessee State University. And uh, while we were there, um, a part of our lifestyle there was to really be involved in the community. And so I sang in uh, the Civic Chorale. Again, my undergraduates in music, I was a voice student. Hmm. So I sang in the Civic Chorale, and they have a really excellent Civic Chorale in Johnson City. Um and there, you know, that's where, you know, most of my friends there were not Christians. The friends that I had there that were Christians weren't PCA Presbyterians. Uh, and that was so life-giving and missional, you know, uh, to me. Um, but most of our friends who were Christians in that setting were Episcopalians. And so they would often then ask me to come sing with their choir, to come moonlight. They were going to have an evening service. There was going to be a musical service, and I knew about that kind of service from my undergraduate years. Uh, and it was the chance to sing music that I love that we didn't do in my church. And so uh, any time I got the opportunity to do that, I always left sort of sighing and going, 
Ah, uh, boy, that's so life giving. <laughs> that's not in my church. That's not in my tradition. I love what's in my tradition too. Um, but there's a part of me, a significant part of who I am, that really connected with not only those aspects of worship, but even that kind of worship space. Yeah. The way their sanctuaries are and the way their churches are set up and done um, really connects with me. Um, so, but then, yes, there were crises in ministry as a Presbyterian that made me rethink um, how I liked or how I thought, according to the scripture, uh, the church can be structured. Mm. Um, and I just began, as I looked then and had friends in the Episcopal Church here in Central Florida uh, and looked into it, um, that structure seemed uh, to really connect with who I am. Yeah. And so when I asked if they thought there would be a place for me, and they said yes, and it seemed as though it was, it was good to the Lord and to us mm. that uh, that's where, where God was calling me. For me, a part of that journey was I, would, I was tired of being a separatist, and that's just me. I'm not saying anything about anybody else. Um, Jesus talks so much about unity in the scriptures and so much about the unity of his church. And I'd been a part of a break-off Presbyterian denomination all my life. I've been a separatist all my life. Um, and for me, I came to the place of saying, I want to be in a big, messy church filled with people that believe things that I don't agree with, but who say they love Jesus and they believe the Bible uh, and they want to figure out a way to try to stay together. That I was at a place in my life where that was very attractive to me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, and I just have to say... Um, I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, and, you know, same kind of deal. We we rarely took communion. I don't I don't even remember it being a a set schedule. Um, but uh, d didn't know that I felt like something was missing until until later on, you know. And uh, and gosh, I just have to say from just from our time together over the last uh, several months uh, things that I would that I would have viewed one way five or ten years ago I can look now and say wow there's a beauty in that 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 I never really noticed I, I probably wasn't ready in my heart to notice it in the moment you know mm -hmm. uh, but even even uh, the liturgy and the book of prayer um the 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 order uh of the way that uh that I see you guys do things I think at one point in my life I would have said gosh that's stuffy stodgy boring religion and uh, I look at it now and I think boy that is so practical <laughs> and so timely and so good um it answers a lot of the questions I didn't even know I had. Mm. You know, the beauty of uh, of the, the the murals, the the stained glass, mm. um, the positioning of furniture, the order in which candles are lit. <laughs> you know, it's just. Uh, I, I think it's something until you experience it, right? 
you just don't really get. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it and it can still be rote and mechanical and lifeless and dead. Yeah. Of course it can. Yeah. Everybody's tradition can. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to be. Um, that wasn't its intent. That wasn't the intent of any of our traditions. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but there is a thoughtfulness to it and intentionality to it that is really breathtaking if you yeah. take the time to look into yeah. it. So, in the Episcopal Church, where you are now, mm-hmm. um, I've actually been to a, a communion time where, where John served communion to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my first time ever having real wine at communion, yeah. which was a, a different thing for me. <laughs> um, but I'm still born again, even after drinking wine. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so was Jesus. <laughs> so was Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um, <sighs> But is is uh, is all Anglicanism? Um, is there is there the, the transubstantiation? Is that a part of all Anglicanism? Great question. Um, and let me clarify that. Sure. Uh, transubstantiation. Uh, I just messed the word up, but it is the the thought that the the bread and the wine actually physically in that moment become the body and blood of Christ? Correct. Okay. Um, that is what the word means, and therefore I would say that that's actually not uh, exactly mainstream Anglican okay. uh, views. There are lots of Anglicans who do have that view. Okay. Um, but the Anglican communion uh, is a worldwide communion, that is, it is big and it's diverse, and you would have a spectrum of views within the Anglican Communion. Okay. And so the the way the Anglican Communion, including the Episcopal Church, would speak of it is to say we believe in the real presence, hmm. which is not exactly the same thing as saying uh, what is and really what is. I always, even though it's the way I always talked about it, it's really a caricature. Of the view of transubstantiation, but it's not as though the bread magically transforms into flesh, uh, and the wine magically transforms into blood. Um, that's actually not transubstantiation either. Um, but real presence uh, is saying uh, God's doing something. Something happens, and uh, we are connected physically with the real body and blood of Jesus uh, in the Eucharist. Now, again, we would uh, stress uh, the mystery of it, that the word sacrament itself means mystery. Mm. Um, And so this is a sacrament. This is a mystery. Um, So that we're comfortable with that mystery and embrace it. Um, but the view, you know, it's really looking back. It's looking at the, the scriptures, of course, but also uh, looking at uh, the early church fathers and what they wrote and how they described the Eucharist. Um, when I took a class on worship at Neshota Seminary, which is an Episcopal seminary, um, you know, I had never read the earliest Christian documents after the scriptures with liturgical lenses on, and that's what we did in that class. And so to read the Didache 
which is a, a manuscript, one of the earliest Christian manuscripts after the the letters are in the New Testament. Um, you know, it includes. It, there's so much it doesn't tell us about how to do the Lord's Supper, right? But but it talks very specifically about anything that's left over after the Lord's Supper. You take great care with it. Take great care with how it's handled and what you do with it, and make sure it's protected because it says, you know, you wouldn't want a mouse to to take the body of Christ. Yeah. Right. Well, um, as what much as sometimes I think we might like to think, well, those ancient peoples, you know, just weren't as civilized. That's just not true. These were not. These were really smart folks. Yeah. Um, these were um, really spiritual. Folks. Really spiritual folks. Really careful folks. Um, and they've just even time-wise were not that far from the apostles themselves. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's one manuscript. So you can't make, and it's not scripture, right? Right. So um, you can't make it into something it's not. But I think it's wise for us to wrestle with what it is uh, and how early it is and how universally it is generally accepted in the Christian church for most of the last 2,000 years. Calvin, to me, Calvin's explanation has helped me the most in embracing the mystery because Calvin's view was was real presence. But Calvin's view was where is the physical body and blood of Christ? It's in heaven, right? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay. And yet, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, and so what Calvin says is that somehow, and I even love that language, Somehow, (laughs) somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we eat that bread and drink that wine, we are spiritually transported to heaven itself and there joined, commune with the real body and blood of the Lord Jesus. But it is not to bring Christ down. It is actually, which again is a much bigger biblical view, that when God's people gather together in worship, that we are on the the threshold between heaven and earth. Mm. And the table is like a portal that is on the threshold between heaven and earth. Yeah. Um, and so that helps understand, again, all the reverence in coming to the table. Because you're coming to the veil. If you think of tabernacle, think of the temple. Yeah. You're coming to the veil, and there's but there's no veil because Christ has come. Right, the veil is gone. Uh, you're coming literally, really, to the threshold of heaven, um, which is an awesome place. Yeah. Um, but to me, that has really that helped me a lot was Calvin's view that somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit really in that moment when the bread goes into our body when the wine goes into our body 
uh, we are joined, connected to, commune with the body and blood of Jesus in a way that is different from any other time in the rest of our lives. Why do you think it is that people have a hard time imagining that mystery when we can so easily grab hold of a baby coming from a virgin? Right. You know, it's all mystery. It is mystery. That's right. Mm-hmm. Tis mystery all. Tis mystery all. Yeah. Tis mystery all the immortal dies on the cross. Um, well, I think... Part of it is the physicality of it, you know. We can't see conception that happens inside a woman's body. We can see you take ordinary bread and wine Mm -hmm. and give them to us and say that now it's something different. Yeah. It's not ordinary anymore. It's holy. Right? Yeah. I know you, you have a pretty firm belief about serving fermented wine over grape juice. Tell me about that. Um, Well, on the one hand, it's as simple as um, these are explicit commands of Jesus and I don't have, I don't feel I have margin to change them. on the one hand, it is that. Um, on the other, it's just the history, you know, that um, there was no such thing as unfermented grape juice until it was created by Mr. Welch for the Methodists so that they could have, you know, during Prohibition, so that they could have something in communion that wasn't alcohol. Yeah. Well, that story alone, to me, means that's not a good enough reason for me to of that in communion um it which means it's so it's so recent it's so late in church history um so yeah i don't know that my answer has to be more complicated than that for the people that drink grape juice i don't have anything against you i don't you know, if, uh, as a Presbyterian, when I when I planted churches and was able to offer wine and communion, I still had a a split tray, and there was grape juice if you wanted it, but there was wine if you wanted it. Yeah. Um, now the wine was red and the grape juice was white, because if you're not going to drink the real stuff, you're going to be the one who has a color you that's and everybody else different. Know it. That's right. <laughs> uh, and therefore, you're not the first. Even as a Presbyterian, uh, I'm afraid I'm the culprit that caused alcohol to pass the lips of more than one uh, who had never had it before, even though I told them that the white is grape juice and the red is wine. Um, but yeah, I think it's... Um, I think there are bigger purposes too that God, God made us body and soul. God, we are an an embodied being, and and wine, alcohol, um, does something to our bodies that grape juice doesn't. That you feel it in a different way, which. I think can help if we're trying to put if we're trying to grasp the real presence of Christ if we're trying to grasp what God is doing 
um, I think that's a grace to us. Mm. It's a, a condescension to how God made us, not meaning there's something wrong with how God made us, but that God understands how he made us. That's really good. You had mentioned to me at one point about the significance of the bitterness of of the wine. Do you remember that? Uh, I don't, but um, yeah, or the yeah. I mean, I've at times you know been able to use a port wine, which which has a. I mean, I use a ruby port, so it's not quite. It is it has a sweetness to it, but but a fermented wine like port, you know, kind of has a burn. To it, I mean, yeah. it, it warms your throat all the way down to your gullet, yeah. which is my name. Um, and again, I think that that I think that that is a help to, given how God made us, it helps us comprehend. It can help us comprehend yeah. that God is doing something. Because right. to me, that's one of the biggest keys to the sacraments yeah we're we're participating we're involved god is the primary person saying and doing things yeah in the sacraments <clears throat> yeah so so good you know um the so just even some of the scripture that i, I never really put two and two together with as Jesus is walking with the two on the road to Emmaus. Right. They invite him in for dinner. He blesses the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it, and their eyes are open. Their eyes are open, that's that right. Moment. That's right. What, what a beautiful picture of what the Eucharist does. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and Luke, you know, Luke is very intentionally with the words he's using there, tying, making a connection. Uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden, do you know that? Yeah. That Adam, that that the language that he uses there is only used uh, one other place, which is in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the vine. It says their eyes were opened, oh, wow. and they knew that they were naked. And so Luke is very intentionally using that language to say this is the reverse of the curse. Wow! That in that moment their eyes were opened and they saw him. That as they, as he broke the bread and gave them the wine, their eyes were open. Jesus has come to reverse the curse, uh, to to accomplish, bring, consummate redemption. Wow! No, I've never never thought about that. Never heard that. Yeah. That's amazing. And then Paul, in one of Paul's shipwrecks, yeah. he breaks the bread. He does. And uh, yeah, so the table imagery itself runs through the whole of the scriptures, right? From uh, from the garden where God makes specific provisions for the man and the woman to eat uh, and his own fellowship with them at the cool of the day, which seems to have been his usual thing, um, to the Passover meal, to uh, the covenant renewal meal on the, the foot of Mount Sinai, after they've come through the Red Sea, where it says they they saw God and they ate and they drank, right? To um, the 23rd Psalm, which you're preaching on, thou preparest a table before me, yeah. the presence of my enemies. 
to Isaiah 25, you know, given this beautiful picture of the eschaton, of the end of all things, as a feast with the best food and the best wine to all of Jesus' parables about feasts and weddings and banquets, uh, the prodigal son, you know, inviting inviting both of his sons into the feast of his love, yeah. right? The, the table just runs throughout the scriptures. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage, all the way to the marriage all supper the of the Lamb. The yeah. Wow. Wow. It's just been amazing to me uh, to, to see how my own heart has changed over the last uh, little while. We're, we're a pretty unorthodox um, church in the charismatic tradition in that We've just made it a priority to receive the table every single week. Amen. And I think people, uh, people, it's one of the things that when we sent out our questionnaire about starting to meet back together, it's one of the things people mention the most. Mm. We miss yeah. the How Lord's table. That? Yeah. You've taught them the hunger and thirst after oh, it's been, uh, it's a beautiful thing yeah. every week. And, um, I'm just so thankful the Lord is helping us to have a deeper Right. And I, so as a Presbyterian, had to go through that transition too, moving, trying to move congregations to having more frequent communion, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm sure, all the arguments against it, oh, it will become rote, it will become mechanical. And, and again, the, the answers are really easy and self-evident. Because you just say, well, then you wouldn't want to kiss your wife very often, would you? Right. You don't want that to become rote or mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you really like that, that song in worship. Well, you wouldn't want to sing it again anytime soon, right. would you? Well, of course you would. You, know, you don't if, want to have um, lunch every day. Right. <laughs> and, and when it comes to the things that we can do like that only together in worship because they're communal things, why wouldn't we want all that Christ offers us every time we can be together. Yeah. I want it all. Yeah. I want more. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. I want all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean I notice even in in the way your your church is set up, like the table's right in the middle of everything. Yeah. The table's I, I would imagine that's not by accident. No, that's right. <laughs> no, that's right. The table the table is central um for a reason and that again that goes to the way we organize the service um, the liturgy everything is leading to the table um, you know growing up as a Presbyterian it seemed like everything led to the sermon yeah. um, and then again I encountered other Presbyterians who had the table every week uh, and began to see that that other traditions did it differently and then learning about um, you know even the worship of God in the Old Testament after God um, gives a, a very, gives lots of instructions right in the book of Leviticus about how people are to worship him you know the shape of that liturgy if you will in Leviticus chapter 9 with all the different sacrifices and offerings culminates in it's leading to the last one which is the peace offering well the peace offering is the only one of the sacrifices that the priests ate some of the sacrifice some of it is burned up on the altar symbolically showing that God eats it 
and the people also eat it. It was the only one that was a meal that the people also ate. And it was the culmination. It was the end. It was the, the drug. It was where the movements of the other things were leading was to the table. Well, that, that pattern carries over into the synagogue where there's not animal sacrifices, but they still follow the same movements uh, of the service. And the early church continued, I think, that pattern. Um, and, and it continues in a lot of churches today, that everything is, is headed towards the table because the table symbolizes uh, a renewed relationship, a restored relationship. Um, we're invited back to table fellowship with God. Yeah. Af- after we've dealt, been reminded that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, we've dealt with our sins. After we've been taught and instructed by the Word and submitted ourselves uh, to the transforming work of the Word, after we have sung His praises and acknowledged His holiness and His greatness, um, the, the culmination is that we we sit down and eat together. Yeah. We we have table fellowship together. Wow. So yeah, it's a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. It really, really is. Well, John, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Of and, course. Um, teaching us and helping us. And for those of you who are listening, I would just encourage you to um, to broaden, maybe broaden your perspective about about what you believe communion to be and how you've practiced it. And um, <clears throat> Just ask the Holy Spirit uh, to help you see and understand uh, more deeply about uh, what, what, what the Eucharist, what communion really is. And uh, we'll all grow together. Amen. So thanks again, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. I know that there are a multitude of podcasts to choose from. So I really appreciate you spending some time listening to the Now Forming Podcast. If you've enjoyed this content, would you do me a favor and share it with those that you think might benefit from it? God bless you. Thanks again.